Welcome to the Ask Zach Show. I'm your host, Zach Childs. I've spent the last 30 years working in the music industry here in Nashville, Tennessee, during which I've done everything from touring with major artists like Brad Paisley and Carrie Underwood to playing the nastiest dive bars or even the occasional wedding. This show is all about barreling down the rabbit hole on all things guitar and the music we love. We will cover the legendary players, gear insights, and even some interviews along the way. I hope you enjoy. To support the show, follow the links in the description to find out about my Patreon page. Or go to my store at AskZach.com to pick up a coffee mug or t-shirt. Now, let's dive in. Well, hello, friends, and welcome to Ask Zach. Today, we're going to talk about Eldon Shamblin and his 1954 gold Stratocaster that was given to him by Leo Fender. So you might be saying, I don't care about Eldon Shamblin. Well, you should if uh, Leo Fender counted him high enough to give him a first-year Stratocaster in a custom color, uh, and there's no other gold strats uh, from the especially from the early 50s. So uh, Eldon was a very significant guitar player, and so we're going to talk about the why of that. We're going to talk about some of the gear he used through the years, and of course we're going to talk a lot about his Gold 54 Strat. And I was able to get access to that guitar before... Um, it's now owned by Joe Bonamassa, but I had the chance to... Uh, to look at it, and actually J.D. Simo and I uh, kind of, you know, took the neck off, looked underneath the pit guard and such, and took photos. And so I'm going to share those photos with you. And so we're going to kind of go in depth on this crazy cool 1954 gold Stratocaster made by, you know, Fender and uh, given to Eldon Shamblin, who was one of Leo's favorite guitar players playing in his uh, favorite band, Bob Wills and the Texas Playboys. All right, so before we dive in, I need to thank my Patreon supporters because they are what keeps the show going, and if you'd like to join them, there's a link in the description. All right, let's dive in. So first, we're going to talk about Eldon. So Eldon was born Estelle Shamblin which I'm guessing that was didn't really have a uh, female connotation back then. And I certainly understand why he started going under the name Eldon. Uh, he was born in Weatherford, Oklahoma, which is west of Oklahoma City. And he was born on April 24th in 1916. And so this is the first guitar player that, uh, that I've talked about that's ever shared a birthday with me. I'm born in born on April 24th, but not in 1916. But, uh, so I'm, I'm, you know, that's a, a kind of a, a plus cause it's finally, it's nice to have a, a guitarist with that shares a birthday with me that I, uh, 
enjoy their playing. So let's let's get back to Elton. So Eldon uh, was a self-taught guitarist. He picked up the guitar at, at uh, the age of 17, and he also taught himself to read music. He moved to Oklahoma City to make more money playing, and he played for tips and such. And then in, uh, in 1937, he moved to Tulsa to go to work on staff at a radio station. So he was you know, playing on air and singing. And this radio station was KTUL, and I, I wonder if that's still around. Later that same year, in 1937, he uh, caught the ear of the great Bob Wills, and Bob Wills hired him to play in his band. And at this point, Bob was kind of making the transition from a kind of fiddle band, as it were, to more of a swing band and following the swing music that was popular of the day. And he wanted a more sophisticated guitar player than his original guitarist, and he wanted someone that could play in the swing style, and Eldon could. So Eldon was brought on, and he uh, you know, was responsible for arranging the tunes because, of course, he knew how to read music and he knew how to do some arranging. He uh, also was working with the steel guitarist Leon McAuliffe on these twin guitar parts and even was working with Leon on how to tune his steel. So, uh, yeah, Eldon was responsible for some of the, uh, you know, what we think of as, you know, Western swing tunings on these, you know, kind of non-pedal steels, these, uh, you know, kind of console steels and such. So Eldon was extremely important in this band. Now, when his style, you know, what, what the style of guitar playing that he was kind of known for really takes shape is in 1940. Uh, during this time, a little bit before that, uh, Eldon was really having to carry kind of the bass lines on the guitar. And the reason was, is that Bob Wills did not put a lot of importance on bass players. And so many times he would hire guys that were singers and then have them play upright bass. Now you have to remember at this time, uh, there was very little amplification and certainly nothing that could really carry bass. And so the bass really wasn't heard very well at this point. And so... Eldon's job was to kind of help out with the bass lines uh, on the guitar, but he would also play, you know, ar arpeggios or rhythm or, you know, rhythm stabs underneath it, kind of like Freddie Green in the, yeah, in the Count Basie Orchestra. So uh, where we first get a recorded example of that is in 1940, they cut the tune, Take Me Back to Tulsa, and Bob Wills told Eldon specifically, I want you to play a lot of runs. And that meant playing bass runs and really covering for the bass. Because also you have to remember, this is early recording technology and uh, bass frequencies really couldn't be amplified or reproduced well. And so it was really important for Eldon to carry that and drive the tune. Now, it's a, at this point, I feel the need to kind of demonstrate this style so that you can kind of understand why it would be so important and why Eldon would be so important in this band. 
So I'm going to take uh, a gut bucket simple tune that just has two chords in it. It's called I to Red. So uh, it's we're going to take it in the key of A, and it just has two chords. It has an E, it has an A and an E. So it has a one and a five. And so uh, I'm going to play it. And so I'm just going to play a static A chord and then a quick E chord, you know, quick five just so you can get an idea of the tune and just how, you know, kind of simple it starts off. Um, I'd read, I'd read, I'm plump fool about I'd read. I'd read, I'd read, I'm plump fool about I'd read. Okay. You know, and I, I didn't sing a verse or anything like that. It was just, you know, kind of uh, giving you an idea. So what Eldon did was that would be kind of what the, the, the level one guitar part would be. And that's probably what most people would have done. Well, the bass line for that would have been, uh, you know, if it was a good bass player, which of course they didn't have a good bass player, the bass player probably would have walked it and probably would have gone... something like that. So what Eldon did was Eldon combined the bass line and moving chords to produce a much more interesting part. So think about, you know, doing this, I'd a red, I'd a red, I'm plump fool about I'd a red, versus this, I'd a red, I'd a red, I'm plump fool about I'd a red, I'd a red, I'd a red, I'm plump fool about I'd a red. Okay. That is so much more interesting. One, you've got this great moving bass line, and you've got this harmonization underneath it that includes, you know, like a diminished chord and, uh, you know, a minor chord and, you know, some different, you know, different inversions. And you have this wonderful moving bass line, and it is so much more fun for the singer, like even just singing something, you know, over and over again, like Ida Red, Ida Red. Uh, for the rest of the band. I mean, it grooves. Eldon Shamlin grooved. He grooved. He did that kind of thing. And then that, that's just like a gut bucket, simple two chord song. He's doing that on even much more sophisticated songs that have, you know, one, six, two, five changes or modulate to different keys and stuff like that. Like if you think about, you know, San Antonio Rose, where it kind of, it modulates, you know, on the chorus and such, and then modulates back. So, I think from that, you kind of get an idea of how important Eldon is. And Eldon was known for his rhythm playing. However, and, and he's known for his rhythm playing because it was kind of groundbreaking and was such an important part of the band and such an important part of the groove. Groove is really important. I don't care what kind of music you're talking about, whether it's Western swing or soul or heavy metal or whatever. If it doesn't have groove, it doesn't have anything. And Eldon Shamblin brought the groove to Bob Wills and the Texas Playboys. He also brought great leads, and he was a great soloist. And so I made a Spotify playlist uh, that showcases a lot of his soloing with the band. A lot of it comes from, the majority of it comes from the Tiffany transcriptions, which are these amazing recordings that they did that were not unearthed until, um, you know, in the, 70s or 80s, and they started being released on albums, and I have a, a couple of them back here. And so, if you listen to the Spotify playlist, or just, you know, and and those things tend to either have Eldon or Junior Bernard, and so I purposefully, of course, 
looked really hard and did my research to make sure that I was always giving you Eldon Shamblin soloing, not Junior Bernard, who's another one of my favorites, but you can kind of tell it's Junior because he plays more aggressively and he has a dirtier tone. Uh, but uh, Eldon had a little bit of a sweeter tone. So, uh, I mean, we're going to talk about the Strat in the, uh, uh, in the gear section, you know, that's going to come up in a bit. But, uh, you know, toward the, uh, you know, the end of the, in the 40s, you know, of course, you have the Tiffany transcriptions. You have some other things where they're working with MGM. And by mid-1954, Eldon is actually at the tail end of his time with Bob Wills. There was a break in there where he didn't play with Bob, and that was during the Second World War when Eldon was drafted and was an artillery captain, and he, uh, he, he served our country. So, uh, but he, he was with uh, Bob Wills for quite a long period of time, and he quit in, uh, in mid to late 1954 to work with a guy named Hoyle Nix, who'd had a hit with uh, Big Balls in Cowtown, which is, of course, you know, a tune that all the kids love. And, uh, yeah, and then after that, Eldon kind of disappears from the music scene. Part of it is that his style of playing is not really wanted anymore. You know, Bob Wills is not very popular at this point. Uh, Western swing and that style of playing is not popular. It's not until, uh, and just, you know, kind of staying on, on course, uh, Eldon actually starts tuning pianos and teaching music in Tulsa, and that kind of becomes his gig until the late 1960s when Merle Haggard starts putting together a, a group of former Texas Playboys so that he can do a Bob Wills tribute album called Best Damn Fiddle Player in the World. That album is a huge touchstone, and it starts a spark of a Western swing revival. And that album is wonderful. If you haven't heard it, you need to hear it. Um, and it brings about a reunion of the surviving Texas Playboys. And even Bob is there, even though he's had a, a stroke and is not able to perform. And it's called Bob Wills and the Texas Playboys for the last time. And those are really great recordings. After that, you know, of course, uh, or during that period of time, you get, you know, things like Commander Cody and you get Asleep at the Wheel and all these other bands that are heavily influenced by Bob Wills. And you get a, uh, you know, a revival, you know, of Western swing. Uh, you get Eldon and Tiny Moore. Tiny Moore, of course, was the great five-string mandolinist uh, with uh, Bob Wills. You know, the two of them, you know, start uh, playing with Merle Haggard off and on throughout the 70s and into the 1980s. And you get, uh, you know, a lot of the Bob Wills veterans performing together again, sometimes as the Playboys too, or un under different names. And, uh, and you get some tribute records from Asleep at the Wheel and others that, uh, that utilize as many of the old players as they can, uh, as are still alive and still able to play. And uh, Eldon, you know, keeps playing into the 90s. And uh, what, a, uh, what a great player and a, uh, and a great story. Um, let's, uh, let's talk about his gear. So I'm going to change pages for this. So uh, one thing I, I should add is that, uh, of course, Eldon's playing was, uh, was very influenced by uh, Eddie Lang, who played arpeggios and such. 
And of course it had a lot of similarities. His rhythm style had a lot of similarities with Freddie Green. All right, let's talk gear. So early on, Eldon played a Gibson LC flat top. And then after that briefly played a Rickenbacker frying pan guitar. So this was the earliest solid body guitar. It was, you know, of course, called the Electro A22. And uh, he briefly played it, but of course it, uh, Bob Wills did not like the appearance of it. And, uh, and so he said, I want, to, I want people to know that you're playing guitar. And of course, because it looked like that little frying pan with a neck on it, uh, as we can see in this picture, um, yeah, it didn't, it didn't cut the mustard, even though it probably uh, amplified well and, and uh, you know, certainly could be heard. Uh, it, didn't, it didn't pass the, uh, the visual test. So he uh, began playing a uh, Gibson Super 400 that was owned by Bob Wills. And so uh, he, uh, he got it or, you know, wheeled and dealed with Bob. And so here's a photo of, uh, you know, of Eldon and Bob early on with the uh, Super 400. And it's, uh, you have to remember, those guitars were called a Super 400 because when they were released, they were $400. And so if you take the mid-30s and you paid $400, if you take inflation into account, that's like $8,500 in today's money. So that was an extremely expensive pro guitar that was made by Gibson in the 1930s. So he played this 30s Super 400. He tried using a crystal pickup, and he said that that didn't work very well because it was very uneven with, you know, certain strings would be louder than others. And then, uh, you know, D. Armand releases their, uh, you know, what we call the monkey on a stick, which is that chrome pickup that was on the, the slider that mounts on the, you know, the end of the neck and the, uh, the tail in the, uh, the bridge. And, uh, you know, you're able to slide it around and it has a volume and tone control. And so he uh, used that. So I think we have a picture here of him with the Super 400 now with the monkey on a stick. Um, then in, uh, in 1940, he started playing a Gibson ES-150, you know, like a Charlie Christian guitar. So here's a photo of that. Um, yeah, and uh, apparently he didn't use it for a, a real long time because he didn't really, uh, apparently he just didn't really love the guitar. I'm sure he had the matching amp to go with it and such. Um, part of that rig was a volume pedal. And so again, this is like 1940, he, you know, Eldon is using a volume pedal. And the reason for that is that Bob Wills was notorious for just taking his bow to his fiddle and he would just point at you and there wasn't enough time to hit the volume control, especially on like some big archtop guitar and the volume controls, you know, way over here or something like that. So uh, they, you know, DeArmond made a volume pedal uh, that they started, you know, selling in the, in the 19, late 1930s. And so, uh, yeah, so he had his DeArmond pickup and his DeArmond volume pedal and he was ready to gas it up whenever it was his turn to solo. Uh, he continued playing the Super 400 uh, and the, of course the the ES-150 with the Charlie Christian pickup and you know those those two guitars kind of throughout that time period uh, but more so the the Super 400 with the DeArmond pickup than the uh, the Charlie Christian ES-150. And uh, then we get we get this picture which has to be at least 1949 because you have a TV, TV front amp from Fender and you have a, a Gibson ES-5, you know, triple pickup guitar. So 
that's the first year for both of those. So it's it's got to be, uh, you know, the earliest it could be is 49. It could be a little bit, you know, later than that. This is probably any, you know, at some point the uh, Super 400 kind of fell apart, which is, is awful. But uh, he said the the uh, the bracing in it, you know, bracings came unglued, and I guess there wasn't really repairmen super available. And he says he briefly played a uh, another blonde Gibson for a bit, but didn't like it. And that gets us up to the 1954 Stratocaster. So let's talk about Leo and Bob Wills and the Texas Playboys. So Leo was a big fan of Bob Wills and his band and started supplying them with amplifiers. Uh, we don't know if they were gifts or whether they were discounted, but besides... Uh, you know, he would also service them. And so whenever the, uh, the Playboys were in town, they would go to the Fender factory and they would get their amplifiers fixed up, you know, new tubes, whatever needed to be done. And he was also working on their guitars to a degree, even if they weren't Fenders. So uh, Junior Bernard had a uh, Epiphone Emperor that uh, Leo added a pickup to and, uh, and some wiring and such. And... Leo was trying to get Eldon to play the no-caster, broadcaster, telecaster, you know, Esquire thing. Uh, but Eldon was not interested at all. And uh, Leo tried to give him one, and Eldon wouldn't take it. So Eldon was not interested at all. So in 54, Leo had a special Strat built and he had it painted gold, and it's the only gold 54 Strat. And, uh, and he gifted it to Eldon. And Eldon at first was taken aback because he still didn't, you know, he still didn't know whether this was something he wanted to play or not. Because he had been an, a Gibson or Epiphone, I guess, archtop guy, and uh, wasn't really interested in becoming a solid body player. But Leo insisted, and he finally just said, look, take it with you, and if you don't like it, just bring it back the next time y'all are in town, the next time you stop by the factory to have stuff serviced. So Eldon took the guitar, and he ended up loving it, and he kept it. Uh, unfortunately, it wasn't long after this, after getting the guitar, that he left Bob Wills and, of course, started playing with Hoyle Nicks of Big Balls and Cowtown fame. So we don't have any pictures that I've been able to unearth of Eldon playing with the Playboys in the 50s with that guitar. And I'm not sure, you know, about, you know, recording. So I, uh, you know, we don't have any for sure recordings from the 50s that, that I'll, I would, you know, stake my life on that, that feature the Strat. However, there are, there's tons of recordings of him using the Strat with, you know, of course, Merle Haggard and with, uh, you know, all sorts of characters. And so there are later recordings also on the uh, Spotify playlist. But yeah, you can listen to the uh, Best Damn Fiddle Player Merle Haggard record or Playboys for the Last Time or, uh, you know, all, you know, the tribute things that have been done through the years. Also, there's, there's some great footage on YouTube of uh, where Eldon was filmed in the 1980s playing uh, like Melt Cow Blues and some other tunes, you know, where there's the video guy is just right on him and you get to see him the whole song and you get to see him work the neck of that old Strat. So let's talk about that Strat. 
finally, for all of you that have been waiting. So, the guitar, uh, Eldon's 1954 Stratocaster, Eldon sold it to, uh, to Strings West, to Larry Briggs, the owner of Strings West in Tulsa, Oklahoma. And, uh, and he started playing like a, a Strat Plus, you know, with like lace sensors and, and such. And so that's kind of what he played at the very end of his life. And Larry owned the guitar for a long period of time. And then, you know, probably a, let's see, about 2015 or so, it started floating around and started changing hands. So there were a number of high-level collectors that would get the guitar and then pass it on. And uh, it was during this period of time that my good friend J.D. Simo had access to the guitar and had it at his home for, uh, for a day or two. And while he had it, he called me up and said, hey, you've got to come down here. And so J.D. will periodically do that. And uh, whenever he calls, it's like, you know, it's going to be something cool. Like, I mean, it's been like a real flying V or a burst or different things like JD will come upon, you know, and get access to these things. And, and uh, he's been kind enough to include me. So I was very glad that he, uh, that he did that. And so he called me up and he said, you got to come over now. And so when I got over there, you know, here's the guitar. So here's a shot of me in JD's uh, on his like back porch. Uh, holding the Strat, you know, giddy. You can tell it's around 2015 because I have, uh, you know, darker hair. So, uh, yeah. But, uh, and a nice uh, flowery shirt. Uh, then we, uh, we basically took all the strings off and we took it apart. And so here we get to photo number two where you can see the piece of masking tape that's in the control cavity. And it says Gloria was a common name uh, that uh, she was one of the, the workers. She was Hispanic and she, uh, you know, wired up a lot of guitars. And so uh, there's her name and it has a date of 6554. So uh, we know that that's the earliest the guitar, you know, could have been, uh, you know, finished out. So, uh, you know, June 4th of 1954. The next shot is the back of the pots and some of the electronics. And, uh, you know, here, of course, you get to see the old, you know, the old original uh, cap. That's uh, one microfarad. Uh, looks like, you know, a little phone book thing is that what they call them. Uh, I don't know whether the pots are all original. Uh, the pot that we can see a, a date code on, it looks like it's the 42nd week of 1953, which would make sense because that's late 53 that they could still have some of those pots around. But it looks like it's 100K. Of course, that's the bottom tone control. I don't know. Uh, the other thing that's really curious about it is it has those chicken head knobs, which, I mean, we'll talk more about that later. But, of course, chicken head knobs would have a set screw. And while the or original style you know, Stratocaster knobs would just be press on and you'd have a knurled pot. So one of the things I wish that I had done was look closely at the pots while I had access to them to see if they were knurled, you know, split shaft or whether they were smooth, you know, which would make sense with those chicken head knobs. Also, there's a lot of, um, we believe, you know, as far as we know that those chicken head knobs are original to the guitar you know, which of course would have been used on Fender amps at that point in 1954 and onward. So, uh, 
who knows, are they split shaft or are they solid shaft, you know, smooth ones. Regardless, they have cool chicken head knobs, which are, uh, I must admit, they're a lot cooler than just the regular, you know, Stratocaster knobs, even if they are the short skirt, you know, from 54. Uh, but yeah, uh, let's see, next shot, you know, you get, uh, you get an, another shot of the electronics and you can see the, uh, the masking tape that's on there that, uh, that's kind of wrapping some of the wires and kind of keeping them clean and together. Uh, let's see, our next photo, well, photo number five, as it were, we get a shot of the back of the pickups and you can see those, those big magnet Alnico 3 pickups. And of course you see more masking tape uh, you know, around the, the wiring on the pickups. Uh, which makes it seem like it hasn't been, you know, messed with a whole lot. Even though there is a video out there where a guy says he changed out the neck pickup. Uh, I don't know if this is after that or, or not, but uh, it doesn't look like it's been monkeyed with a whole lot because all that masking tape is still on there on the wiring. Uh, here, uh, shot number six, you get to see, uh, you know, the Gloria uh, masking tape again. Uh, shot number seven we get to see the uh, the neck pocket shim and uh, in there was you know of course I didn't take a, a photo of the whole piece of paper kind of un, unfurled as it were but it had a woman's name and it said call me <laughs> so I guess Eldon had a uh, a girlfriend or something at some point or, or someone that uh, wanted to be his girlfriend and they gave him a piece of paper and he decided you know with her name and number on it and he decided to turn it into a neck shim so uh so there you have it i think that's hilarious uh of course the next shot we get uh, one of the neck heel and uh yeah it's a pretty big shim on there so uh you know really lifting the neck up out of the pocket uh next we get a shot of the neck heel you know where you can see you know the uh the date and so you can see, uh, you know, TG for Tadeo Gomez, and you can see, you know, March of 54. So which would make sense. It would make sense that the neck would probably be done before the, uh, the wiring and electronics would have been done. Uh, next shot, we get uh, the back of the headstock, and you can see just how dark the finish has gotten. And you can see a little peaking of tan lines, you know, where the, uh, the tuners meet, and that's, that's really nice. Uh, Next, we get a, a nice shot of the fretboard, and you can see just how much Eldon played and how much he play, he covered the whole neck because the whole neck was worn down like crazy. I mean, just worn down. Uh, I couldn't believe it. I mean, there wasn't a clean spot on the fretboard. The, he played the entire neck. Of course, next shot, we get uh, a little bit more of the neck going all the way up to the nut. Uh, then up next, we get a shot of the nut. And you can see that it has been changed out and maybe someone had some difficulty because, you know, on some of those early 50s guitars, uh, you know, early strats and, and such, some of them have a really weak little ledge right here, you know, only the tiniest bit of wood here on the headstock end, you know, where, uh, where the nut is. So this area is really, really thin. And you can see that on, on that guitar, it had that problem. And so you've, you know, lost some wood 
has probably people replaced the nut through the years. Uh, certainly seems to, you know, when I played it, it seemed like it had the original frets on it, which were worn down to, to nearly nothing. And you had to use really light strings on it because, uh, yeah, it, you know, that was kind of the only way to play it with, with no frets, really. All right. Uh, next, we get, uh, we get a shot of the upper horn where you can see it kind of the, the uh, very anodized, or, you know, kind of faded, oxidized, you know, gold going into green, which is just really gorgeous. And so it's kind of similar to the uh, early gold top Les Pauls that you would see that do kind of the same kind of thing where that it turns from gold into green. Uh, and then, you know, just to, you know, also, I guess on this photo, we'll stay on that and say, you know, of course, the early 54, 55 Strats had uh, pickup covers that were made out of a really uh, fragile material. And so it was very common for them to crack and to uh, come apart. And so here, of course, you can see some cracking and that kind of ivory looking uh, pickup cover that's really cool. Uh, and the final shot is, you know, nice shot of the whole guitar. And you can see, again, those wonderful uh, pickup covers that are kind of coming apart down at the, uh, the bottom edge here. And, uh, and just those cool amp knobs. And I would love to know if those you know, knobs were you know, original to the guitar. I mean, it's it probably Leo or someone at the factory did put those on, but it's just, was that done you know, when Leo gave it to Eldon or was it done you know, after the fact? So was it done later on? Because there's also photos of Eldon at the factory with his Strat where they're just restringing it for him. Um, and which brings up an interesting, uh, you know, just as far as his, uh, his gear is concerned, you know, of course he played that strat for a very long time and he used later on, you know, throughout the seventies uh, and eighties, he used Ernie ball strings and they were gauged 12 through 53 with a wound third, we believe. And I know it's 12 through 53 and, uh, which makes total sense because that's the kind of set that would have been on the guitar originally. And I'm just gonna state it right here. I think Fender guitars always came with round wound strings. I don't think flat wounds were ever on Fender guitars, maybe on the bass six or something like that. But I think uh, round wounds. And Eldon used round wound strings. That was, he'd never used flat wounds as far as we know. So uh, yeah, and he always, uh, as much as he could, he used an old Fender amp because he felt like that was really the sound to have that 54 Strat with an old Fender amp. And that was the, uh, the way it was supposed to sound and what a beautiful sound it was and what a beautiful, uh, player and style. And I hope you will check out the links down below that have some, uh, you know, some clips of him playing on YouTube, uh, the Spotify playlist. If you want to look at all these photos, you know, up close, uh, or, or just longer than, than pausing a video or something, you can go to my website, askzack.com. There's a link in the description also to there and you can, the, uh, the photos are all going to be up on askzack.com. So, all right, guys. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. We did a, a, a deep dive talking about Eldon and his Strat and his significance. Uh, I need to give credit where credit is due. And, and a, a big 
hunk of credit needs to go to Rich Kinsley, who wrote a beautiful article on Eldon in the March 1988 issue of Guitar Player Magazine. It has Chuck Berry on the cover. This issue has also an article on Rye Cooter and Emery Gordy Jr., my favorite country bass player. And uh, I learned a lot and used a lot of the material, so I needed to give credit to Rich Kinsley for uh, doing this interview. He interviewed, you know, of course, Eldon while he was still alive and, uh, and, and playing. So uh, thank you, Rich, uh, for that beautiful article that you wrote for Guitar Player Magazine. Also, I need to thank Mint Morris. So he is an educator and guitarist down in Austin, Texas, that does a lot of lessons. And he did a whole series on Eldon. And he is who I stole the, uh, the cording that I did on Ida Red. I stole that verbatim from Mint. So if you are wanting to learn more of that style, you know, the, uh, he you know shows how to how to do that on a lot of the uh, different Bob Wills tunes, and uh, yeah, what a what a great player. So I'll put a, a link to uh, to Mint and his uh, his lessons and such. You ought to ought to support him. All right, guys, thanks, and we'll see you next time. Bye bye. <laughs>